Uh, this point, as many of you know, our uh, Cactus Campus and then our chapel next door and our venue across campus. Uh, and then those watching online, join us for our, our time in the Word. And if you're visiting with us or new uh, this week, we're in week two of a, a brand new series that is, is declaring a, a vision for the next season of life here at our church. It's a vision that we believe the Lord uh, gave to us this last summer as we were praying about the next steps for our church. And it's, it's clear, it's simple, it's memorable. And it's this, that we want everybody who calls this church their home to get God, to get real, and to get out there. And let me repeat that. We want to get God, get real, and get out there. And I, I think I need to say this is not a gimmick. It's not a slogan. It's not anything silly like that. This is a spirit-led, biblically spot-on vision that we believe has the power to get each and every one of us centered and focused on what truly matters for our lives. And so we're very serious about this. We believe that the Lord has spoken to our spirits about uh, where our church is and what it's going to take to help us continue to be a prevailing church uh, as we move into this next season. We all need to get God on a deep and rich level, get real. We'll talk about that today and then next week as we talk about getting out there. And so last week we started this series by talking about getting God. And I don't do this very often, but if you did miss last week, you're going to want to download last week's message if this is your church home. Because we laid out what we called Trinitarian theology, this idea that God reveals himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that in order to get him, you need to interface with him, trust him, relate to him as Father, Son, and Spirit. That's what it means to get God. And we're going to talk more about that next year as we study the Trinity. And then today, we're going to talk about what it means to get real and why that's so important uh, for our church and our lives. So let's do this. Let's pray right now, and then we're going to open up God's Word. God, our Father, we thank you for uh, the gathered church here and at our campuses and venues and that we can all as one body open your book now. And I pray, God, that as we do so, that your Holy Spirit would illumine our hearts and our minds, that you would reveal to us uh, things in your word that we need to know to live life on purpose for you. And so, God, we have a big task before us today with this idea of, of what it means to get real in your presence, but we have an amazing example, as we're going to see, contained in your word. And so inspire us today, teach us now, we pray in Jesus' name. And the church says together, amen. So I don't think it would be a stretch to say that the most authentic, the most real church that ever existed in the history of churches was the very first Christian church some 2,000 years ago. It's true. Out of all the churches that have ever existed in the history of churches, what happened 2,000 years ago in the very first Christian church that gathered is probably the best example. It's the most real and authentic one that you and I can pattern our lives after. Uh, some of you might remember the story. Jesus is now resurrected from the dead. He walks this earth for 40 days. And then he tells the disciples that they're going to be his witnesses. And then right before he's taken up into heaven in Acts chapter 1, he says, wait for the Holy Spirit. It's going to descend upon you, and then you'll know what to do next. 
And we know that the disciples were somewhat confused at that point because the next scene we find them in is that they're hiding out in the upper room, which was kind of a safe place for them. And they don't know what to do, so they decided to replace Judas. Remember that? Judas, you know, kind of abandoned them and all that and, and betrayed Jesus. So they, 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 they cast lots, which is an Old Testament practice, and they pick Matthias, and they're like, okay, what's next? And then you turn the page into chapter 2 of the book of Acts, and things just explode and take off. It's the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, and the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, descends upon these 12 apostles. Now Matthias is added to them, and there's about 120 other believers, the text tells us, and the Spirit comes upon them, and Peter preaches his very first sermon at that time. Now, I've heard a lot of pastors' first sermons over the years, and the usual response when you hear somebody's first sermon is, that person's got promise, right? You say, I got a good heart, got some promise. That, that is not what happened with Peter's first sermon. This is like Holy Spirit power, and it is such a powerful presentation of the gospel. Now watch this, that it says 3,000 people believed in Jesus and were baptized. So do the math. They go from about 132 believers to 3,000 in one church service. Scottsdale Bible Church is considered a growing church by church demographers across the nation. They look at us and say, you're a growing, rather healthy church. We grow at maybe four or 500 people a year and see about half of those folks get baptized. But given our size, you know, it's kind of steady incremental growth. The first century church grew 30-fold in one weekend. I want you to imagine what would happen if that happened to Scottsdale Bible Church. We'd have a huge problem on our hands, as they did back then. What do you do with a church that grows that fast? And I'm going to compound the problem even more. Because back then, they didn't have near the resources you and I have today right? So back then, they didn't have a church building. They were meeting in the temple, but they're going to get kicked out of the temple here in about two chapters in the book of Acts. So they had no church buildings to meet in, and it would have been awkward to do a capital campaign at that point. They had no paid pastors back then. The apostles were all volunteer fishermen who had hung around with Jesus for like three years, but they had no professional paid pastors. They had no ministries back then. Like if you had said, you know, to Peter, where's the children's ministry? He'd say the what? You know, where, where do the teens meet? What? You know, where's women's ministry, men's ministry, counseling ministry? They had none of that stuff. And to boot, they had no money. They weren't taking offerings yet. So think of all the resources that you and I have to do church today, buildings, pastors, ministries, money. They didn't have any of that. And so the question becomes, well, what did they do then? And here's where the brilliance comes in, gang, uh, of the Bible, is that not only were they able to do amazing stuff without any of the resources we have today, but the stuff they did, as you're going to see in the next 30 minutes, becomes the pattern and example of exactly what will make you and I a real, authentic church. And man, if you don't hear anything else today, I want you to hear this. It's almost dangerous to have nice buildings and paid pastors. Don't fire me, but it's dangerous to have paid pastors. It's dangerous to have all the ministries that we have and even the offerings. Those are all good things, but the danger comes in in that those things can eclipse 
what really matters. Give me an amen on that one. And what we're going to look at right now is what really matters because none of the resources we have make us real. The things we're going to look at right now make us real. So let's read about what made them a real church as we talk about what it means to get real. Acts 2, verses 41 to 47, it describes this first century church, and it says this. So then, those who received his, Peter's word, were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So five ways, at least five ways, that we realize this church got real. Five ways for you and me to function as the body of Christ in a way that is bound to transform our lives and even this mixed up culture around us. And the first one is for you and I to get real with truth. I'm telling you, this is the starting place. You're going to see it here in a second. It's when you and I get real with the truth. But look at how they did this, first and foremost, as it starts to describe this church in verse 42. It says, and they, this first century church, were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, just real quickly, we know that the apostles' teaching here is essentially the Bible you and I have today. Give me a head nod that you all might understand that. In other words, when it says they committed themselves to the apostles' teaching, this was before the, the New Testament was written. And the New Testament would be written by the apostles, essentially, inspired by the Spirit, so that we have their very teaching that comes from God today in the Bible that we have. And notice that it says that they were continually devoting themselves to this truth. I mean, you guys need to see, these people were rabid about truth. They couldn't get enough of it. And when you understand their lives, it makes sense. Because these 3,000 people had just come out of a worldview of darkness that was based on all kinds of lies and deceptions. The culture around them was Greco-Roman, which had that whole Greek God system and then the whole Roman pagan system. And even though many of these people were Jews, it had become really syncretistic over the years, all mixed together, kind of like today, a lot of messed up spirituality. And these people now had the, the word of God right in front of them as the apostles taught them. They now come into the knowledge of the light of Christ. And what you need to see is that they couldn't get enough of this kind of truth bathing themselves in God's revelation. Why? Because they knew that if they got real with the truth, now watch this, their lives would change. 
that transformation was the name of the game because that's how God's truth works. That if you finally get honest with your life and open to what he says, and those are the two keys, by the way. You gotta be honest about your failings, honest about who you are, honest about where you are, and then open to what God says. You do those two things, then God promises he's got you where he wants you and you're going to change. The problem is, is that a lot of Christians, I hate to put too fine a point on it, are not all that open to what God says. They were open the day they got saved, but then they found out God says a lot more and they go, I'm not sure I want that. Or, and we all know Christians like this, maybe it's you at times, they're not very honest about their lives. This is Scottsdale. It's the town of a positive image. It's putting your best foot forward, not letting people see the ugliness. And that might work at the country club. That might work at Starbucks. That might work where you work. The problem is it doesn't work with God. And it really doesn't work with the loved ones around you. I always marvel at Christians that are in denial because they think they're hiding it from everybody, but their wife knows, their kid knows, their best friends know, their small group at church knows. Everybody knows, but they don't know that they know. <laughs> and the reality is, is it's only when we get open and honest before God and his truth that we are actually real and our lives begin to change. You know, I've been a Christian, as you guys know, about 35 years. And when I was a young Christian back in Chicago, uh, when I was in seminary back in the 1980s, I, I one day visited what was clearly an Acts, Acts 2 kind of church. It was a, a very popular church, very evangelical, very solid. And uh, on that particular day, as I was visiting this church, the pastor was speaking on a very simple but profound passage out of Matthew 5 that has Jesus saying this. Jesus says, if therefore you're presenting your offering at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering before the altar, go your way, be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. It's not rocket science, right? It's simply saying that in that context, that if you're, you're in the temple and you're presenting an offering, but you know that you got enmity with the guy over here, uh, it's better to go, go reconcile here, then come do your business with God. That's what Jesus was teaching. And so the pastor explained all of that and the passage, and then he wrapped up doing something that I thought was incredibly gutsy, especially as I was watching this as a young seminary student. He challenged the people in this worship service at that point to not continue on in their worship at all, to not even sing the closing song, to not offer their gift if there was any brother or sister that they had enmity with that they needed to try to reconcile with. And he said, even further, instead of singing the song, he said, I want you just to go right now and be reconciled. I thought that was gutsy. I mean, you know, there's some of you that leave during the last song, but I don't think it's to go be reconciled. I think it's to go to get out of the parking lot early, right? And so he was saying to them, just leave now. And this was a huge room. It was bigger than this room. This was one of those mega churches back then. And so here I am sitting there in there, and I thought to myself, I wonder if this is like going to backfire or not. I'm like, what are the people going to do? Because we'd all admit, right, you got to be really real with the truth of God to respond to that one. I mean, if I was sitting there and I was part of this church and I was thinking about 
you know, me having maybe enmity with somebody and maybe I should get up and go right now, my, my fear would be, what if I'm the only one? You know, like, I, that'd be awkward, right? Like, oh, there's that guy, you know, he's getting up and going. And so I, I didn't know what happened next. As long as I live, I'll never forget what happens next. About a third to half of the worship center stood up and walked out before the closing song. I, I'd never seen anything like it. They just abandoned church at that moment. I, I stood up as well, not that I needed to, to, to go reconcile with anybody. I, I do at times, but I didn't that, that, that day. I, I, I wanted to go out to the atrium to see what would happen next. So I followed everybody out, and this is a true story. This was back before the days of cell phones. I know some of you young people can't even imagine that, but there was a time we didn't have phones uh, with us. And, and, and they had these things called pay phones. You might remember them where you, you put a quarter in there and you can make a call. And, and this church had a bunch of pay phones in the, in the narthex there because it was one of these up-and-coming churches. And uh, I've never seen something like this before. That there were, remember, you know when Chick-fil-A gives away free sandwiches? It was like that. It was all these lines of people behind these pay phones, trying to call somebody in order to reconcile. The ones that couldn't use a pay phone had gone out to the parking lot and I could see them just screeching out of the parking lot to go be reconciled. I've never seen a group of people that rabid to follow Jesus' words. These were people who wanted to get real they didn't want the Word of God to do a drive-by in their lives. They wanted to match up their lives against the Word of God. And if they found it falling short, they had the guts to say, I'm going to do my best to repent and change. And the question that I have for you before we move on to point number two is, what about you and I? You see, one of the things that ruins our witness, I hate to to rain on your parade, is when we say that we are followers of Jesus and, and then we go to work or go out in culture or even back to our families and there's obvious areas that we're not matching up against the word of God, what's the word we use for that? It begins with an H, hypocrite. And in one sense, we're all hypocrites. In one sense, we all fall short. But here's your ace in the hole as you get honest with the word of God and as you get real. At the very least, just admit that you're falling short, right? At least admit to those around you that you don't match up and that you're honest about it and doing your best in order to live out the word of God. I promise you that will make a difference. It's humbling, it's a bit shame-producing, but it's what people need to see if we're ever going to get real. I can remember doing this when I was, a, again, a very young Christian, even younger than when I was at that church. When I first got saved, I was in early college. And this won't surprise you guys about me, but I had a temper back then. Some would say I got a temper now, but no, it's, it's, it's massively controlled now as to what it was back then. And as a young Christian, I was on fire for Jesus. Some of you guys remember those days? I mean, I was just hitting my knees every morning and every night praying. I was reading the Bible like I couldn't get enough of it. I was going to all types of groups and fellowship. I was very much on fire, but I was also struggling with a lot of my emotions and other things. And I remember one day um, I got mad at something. And I, I told you guys a story before. I, I took a, my tennis racket. Now, you guys got to remember, I'm, I'm older. So tennis rackets back then were made of wood so I took my wood tennis racket and I just smashed it against the dorm uh, wall and, and my roommate Chip came in a couple hours later and he goes what happened to your tennis racket and I was all embarrassed because he wasn't a believer and I am see where I'm going with this and I 
I said, well, I, I kind of got angry and, you know, smashed it against the wall. He goes, well, so much for our tennis game, you know, and that type of stuff. And, and I'll never forget, I looked at him and I said, you know what? I don't know if you're ever going to become a Christian because I'm a terrible witness. <laughs> and I'll never forget what he said to me next. He said, yeah. I said, well, he said, I'll grant you this, Jamie. He said, uh, I see you get knocked down a lot. You know, you, you fall down a lot, you get knocked down. And he said, every time you get up, and you're honest about getting knocked down, and you apologize to Jesus and everybody else around you, he said, I wouldn't be surprised if someday I come to the Lord. And eventually he did. See, I think sometimes just you and I being honest and real with the truth of the word of God will make all the difference. Can you do that? I think you can. Now, as you're chewing on that, notice a second way uh, that the first century church got real. And if you thought this was challenging, this will be very challenging too, and that is that they got real with relationships. So they didn't just get real with God and his truth, they got real with those around them. Look at how it says this in verse 42. It says, and they, the first century church, were continually devoting themselves to fellowship and to the breaking of bread. Now, but we need to focus uh, on this word fellowship right now. I, I, this word does not mean what some of us think it means. I, I like how uh, Bill Hybels at the famous Willow Creek Community Church says about this word in one of his articles. Listen to what he says. He says, in the church that I grew up in, you know what fellowship was? It was after we had gone through another service and the men would go out on the patio and one guy would say, how's business, Jake? And the other would say, can't complain. We called it fellowship. Uh, new pickup, Hans? No, it's used. Meanwhile, the women were down in the kitchen. What are you baking this week, Martha? The kids had a cute dress on this morning. Then we'd all say, nice fellowshipping with you. And then we'd disappear and come back and do the same drill the next week. That was fellowship. And though some of you kind of smile at that, here's what I know. That was written probably about 20, 25 years ago. We're still doing the same thing today. This isn't Grand Rapids or Holland, Michigan, where that setting was. This is Scottsdale. But when I see Christians gather together, or even when I get with Christians, there's many times where we talk about good, wonderful things like the new car or, or, or the church building campaign or how work is going, all these things. And we never really get very deep. We never get down to what's really going on in our hearts and our minds. And, and we think that that's fellowship. And what you need to know is that as good as all that stuff might be, that does not match the definition of fellowship according to the Bible. In fact, it falls short of our topic today of getting real. Listen to what Hybels will go on to say. I like this. He says, and I quote, in a biblically functioning community, that's not fellowship. In a biblically functioning community, people take their masks off. They say, let's not spend a lot of time on the business or the pickup truck. Let's not spend a lot of time on baked goods or dresses. Here's what's going on in my life. Here's what I'm scared about. Here's what God is asking me to do, but I don't have the guts to do. Here's the image I'm projecting, but the reality underneath it is not so good. Here's where I'm failing. See, you get real at that level, now you're nudging up against what biblical fellowship is. Letting people know who you really are, what your struggles really are beneath the service. And, 
focus is not all negative, what your joys and dreams are beneath the service. Where are you at really with God? Larry Crabb calls this red dot kind of fellowship. You know what red dot fellowship is? It's when you go to the mall and you look at the map and you see the red dot. And what does the red dot signify? You are here. The red dot tells you where you are. See, the problem is, is that some Christians try to pretend that they're living over in uh, J.C. Pennyland or that they're living over at the food court when that's not really where they are. No, they're way over here. So all Christians need to do to get real is align their red dot with where they really are. And what you need to know is that this is what the first century church uh, did. Oh, I don't have it on the screen. It's fascinating. In verse 46 of Acts 2, this is really interesting. It describes how these Christians met from house to house in small group fellowship. And it uses a three-word phrase to describe what they did. And and we don't want to miss it. It says that they met with sincerity of heart. Sincerity of heart. And, And I'm here to tell you today that the English does not do justice to what the Greek, the original Greek connotes here. Some translations translate this simplicity of heart or singleness of heart. But here's the word picture the Greek gets at. It pictures a heart that has no foldovers in it. In other words, if you can picture a heart that you can fold and fold and fold, folds are places that you can hide things in, right? So you write down who you really are and you can just tuck it away in the fold of your heart. This word, simplicity, singleness, sincerity, means an unfolded heart. It means a heart that is open and laid bare to each other. That's the kind of fellowship that they had in this first century church. This is the kind of relationality that they shared, and it's the kind that God dreams about for you and I. And the reality is, is if you can have just a few relationships like this, gang, just a few, it will affect the way that you interface in all your other relationships. I mean, some of you say to me on a regular basis, gosh, you know, we just love your honesty from the pulpit. Here's the, here, and I'm glad you do, but here's the problem with that. There, there are lots of things I don't tell you about my life from the pulpit. Do you all understand that? I mean, not things that would disqualify me, but they're just things that would not be very appropriate for me to share on my week-in and week-out basis. No, I save those for my dear wife, Kim, and for the three or four men in my life that I am brutally honest with. They get all that. But what happens is, is because I'm so honest there, it bleeds over to you and I. In fact, there are times where I'm preparing a message for you guys, and I think to myself, because I, I do think, you know, how can we all apply this together? And I think, oh, I could share that with them. No, that's too much. Oh, I could share that. No, they don't need to hear that. I could share that. I mean, I, I gotta, I've said to people before, if my discipleship failure and weaknesses encourage you, I have a lot of it to share with you. <laughs> and, and yet I unload that on a few safe others throughout the week, and even my elders And then you guys get the overflow. And and here's my point. And then you guys say to me, oh, pastor, you're so real. You're so authentic. And I sit there and go, if you only knew. But the only reason I can be real with you, and this is my point, is because I'm real 
with a few safe others in my life that really make the difference. Imagine what your life could be like. I know what some of you are thinking. I can tell by your looks, you're thinking right now, well, you know, I've tried that and it didn't go very well. Or, 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 you know, you have no idea what I'd share and it would just blow people away. Here's what I know. Um, Jesus, maybe this word picture will help. Jesus once said, don't throw your pearls to swine. Don't you love that one? Don't throw your pearls to pigs who will just trample on it. He, he was referring to the gospel in that comment, you know, but, but I think he was also referring to anything that's precious to us. And your pain, your struggles, your hurts, your shame, I would argue is very precious to you, and that's a pearl. And it's precious to me too. And so what I've done over the years, watch this, is if I can picture a pearl, all my, my pain and stuff in a clamshell, uh, and, and, and I'm with a group of people, I, I'm good at doing this. I'll just open it up just a little bit. I'll sort of throw a feeler out there. You ever done that? I'll sort of throw a weakness out there, throw something rather safe, and then I watch very closely what they do with that. If they don't listen, just do a drive-by, don't even hear what I say, then I just close it in that moment. Or, 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 or if they basically judge that, you know, and say, really, really? Like, you, you feel that? You know, I, I shut it. But, but more often than not, because I find Christians are a pretty good lot, even though I pick on you guys a lot, more often than not, uh, I will find people either resonating with that or having compassion on that or, or giving some type of understanding on that. And, and then this is what I do. I'll open it up a little bit more. And, and so I sort of test the waters. And, and you guys don't know this, but I'm doing that all the time throughout the week <laughs> with believers when I'm with them. And once in a while, and this is what I have now in my life, I, I, I find some people that I just really click with, that really get me and the things I struggle with, and my life is like this with them, that they have a full look inside the clamshell <laughs> at, at the pearl of my pain and, and, and struggles. And, and, and in that sense, I'm very real with them. Now, here's my point. We're going to move on. Imagine if every Christian had that. Imagine if you had that. Imagine if you had that. Uh, Paul, imagine if you had that. Imagine, and maybe some of you guys do. But if every one of us had that, that we would be having the most real relationships with each other and God enters into that kind of relationality. So we get real with truth. We get real with relationships. And then more quickly, because we spend a lot of time on this one, and we are time limited today, notice a third way this church got real. And this one will hit you hard, though, is they got real with prayer. Now, now again, okay, we got about 15, 20 minutes left. I, I, I say this every week, but I, some of you guys are already starting to think about uh, Mimi's or Chipotle or wherever you're going, Chick-fil-A's clothes. So just don't, 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 don't shut down on me right now. This is a really important topic. Look at what it says in verse 42 as it wraps up just this verse. And they continually devoted themselves because they had no church buildings, no money, no pastors, no ministries, but they're the most real church that ever exist, existed. They continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, to the breaking of bread, and to, say this word with me, prayer. Here's the only thing I want to say on prayer today. One of the biggest problems with prayer over the years is that Christians are notorious at making prayer kind of a obligatory, drudgery kind of thing. Have you ever noticed that? In other words, we pray before meals. We pray in church. We pray before we go to bed. Or we might pray if there's a need throughout the day. 
And, and what can quickly happen with that is that we fail to distinguish between what I have learned to call over the years King James prayers versus trench warfare prayers. And there's a big difference. A King James prayer, which is not a bad prayer, is the prayer that you pray before a meal. Dearest Godeth, I thanketh you for this dayeth, and please bless us this meal to our bodies. In Jesus' name, amen. Not a bad prayer. I'm sure Jesus hears it. I don't think he's going nuts in heaven over that, but he gets it, and he's thankful that you, that, that you prayed and thanked him for the meal. Or a King James prayer might be before bed, you know, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord to soul my keep. The, the, the stuff we teach our children. Uh, a trench warfare prayer is a very different kind of prayer. Uh, a trench warfare prayer it, it happens on a Tuesday afternoon when your week is not going very well. When you're at odds with the spouse, when the kids have taken stupid pills again, when, when your friends don't understand you, when the finances aren't adding up and the week has barely even begun and you come in the door and, and, and here, if you're a good Christian who's real, is what you do. You hit your knees and you don't even know what to say, let alone speak in King James language. You just say, God, help. I'm a mess, and I'm angry, and I don't understand this, and I don't understand why things aren't going well, but I love you, and I know you're the Lord of my life. Please help me in this. And let me ask you a question. Does God have you where he wants you or what? Exactly. And I don't know this for a fact, but I got to believe that these were the kind of prayers that these dear people prayed all the time back then. See, the Bible says that you and I need to pray without ceasing. Isn't that quite a challenge? <laughs> You know how you do that? Just keep the lines open and constantly talk to him. I don't know about your life, but I'm in the trenches all the time. <laughs> so I'm always engaging in trench warfare prayers. And if you and I can remember that, I think we're going to be very real with prayer. Now, fourth thing that this church teaches us, and again, I, I just got to warn you, if you thought the first three were hard, this one I think is a great challenge to you and I today. But we're going to end on a glorious note in, in about uh, 10, 15 minutes. So uh, here's the fourth thing it teaches us is that they got real with truth, real with relationships, real with prayer, and, and they got really real with worship. Look at what it says in uh, verse 46 and 47. It says, and day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, praising God. Again, this is really rich. It's wonderful history here. Um, they're meeting in the temple right now for two reasons. One is that most of the converts were most likely Jewish because it's the day of Pentecost. It's Jerusalem. It's a holiday, and it would be filled with Jews. So we have good evidence that most of the 3,000 people that came to Christ were, are now fulfilled Jews who have recognized the Messiah in Jesus, and that's why they're meeting in the temple because that was their place of worship. And the second reason that we, the temple is important is that in two chapters, they're going to get kicked out of the temple. <laughs> Because people are going to realize these people aren't old, just Old Testament Jews anymore. They're now followers of Jesus, and that's going to tick off the Jewish leaders. But as they were meeting in the temple, they were praising God. Now, you got to understand, they were praising God in a different way than they were before. I mean, before, they would definitely praise Yahweh or praise Jehovah through a lot of Old Testament practices. But now, they had come to believe in Jesus, which is why they use this word praising God. It's a New Testament word. John 4 says Jesus has Jesus saying that he wants worshipers who worship him in spirit and truth. And sure enough, the Holy Spirit descended on the day of Pentecost. 
And now these believers are praising God in a new and a fresh way. And let me give you a very, very 30-second quick primer on worship. We, we know when we add up all that the Bible and the New Testament say about worship that believers' worship is both substantive and expressive. It's doctrinal and it's experiential. It's information and inspiration. Do you see both sides of it? And therein lies the dilemma for you and I. Therein lies the challenge for some of us and our need to get real in worship. Because here's what I know, and I'm going to step on some toes here. I don't want any emails. Just take it like good broccoli. But some of us are good. We got the information down. We got the doctrine down. We got the substance down. I mean, we can recognize what words are good and what words aren't. And Troy and our team and all of our worship leaders work really hard to have doctrinally pure and sound words. So we got that down. We are Scottsdale Bible Church for crying out loud. We are biblically accurate. But sometimes when I look back <laughs> on all of us who are supposed to be worshiping God, if I had to be generous, I would say, well, maybe your heart is connecting, but you might want to tell your face, let alone tell your arms. Or tell your mouth to start singing the words. And again, I know some of you don't like it when I talk like this. I get it. And I've heard all the excuses over the years. People say, well, I don't like the singing. I just want to get to the word. And I think, well, you're going to hate heaven. Have you ever thought about that? Because <laughs> I, I don't hear a lot of sermons in heaven. It's one of Troy's favorite theologies. He tells me all the time, he goes, you know what? You don't read anything about sermons in heaven. You, you hear a lot about singing in heaven. And again, some of you, I mean, I've told you this before, when you guys get to heaven, here's what's going to happen. I promise you, if there's one thing I know, I know this. You are not going to get to heaven and go, what, this is it? Like, I, I, don't, I don't like this song. I mean, that's not going to happen in heaven. You're going to like the songs in heaven. And the reason is not necessarily because they're better songs. Watch this. It's a better you. You have a redeemed soul, a perfect soul, a new body. You are changed and transformed, and you're going to love the singing in heaven. Here's my point. Why don't you start practicing now? Because you're going to sing in heaven. Amen. And again, the second excuse I hear all the time, I love this one. People say, well, I just don't like that style. Oh, my gosh. Really? I mean, look, I get it. I, I am a music idiot. I really am. I, I, I don't play instrument. I play a little bit of guitar, but not much at all. You don't ever want to hear me play. I, I'm not the greatest singer in the world. And I like both kinds of music, country and western. That's the kind of music I like, right? So 102, 107, that's where my stations are set. Drives my kids nuts. And so honestly, if anybody understands not liking the style of music in church, it's me. I, I mean, I... I, I I gotta be so careful how I say this, but the style of contemporary Christian music is not my style of choice. Did I say that gently enough? I, I mean, I listen to it. I turn to Caleb and all these stations. I was going, oh, it's not my style. So because it's not country, it's not Western, it's not even old time rock. Those are the styles that I, I I enjoy. But here's my point: Who cares? I mean, when I come to church. Can you imagine if the pastor was to say, well, I don't really like that style, so I'm not going to sing. That would be awful. 
Because here's what I know. If the words are about God, I can sing it to any style. Amen? Amen. So I can go to chapel, which is very traditional. I can go here, which is more blended, choir and orchestra most days. I can go over, I love this one, the venue, love you venue. They call it modern. I don't even know what that means, but I feel the difference over there. It's more, more modern in its approach. Songs I'm not even aware of. And then Cactus and Saturday Night are, are more contemporary. We have all different styles here. As I've said for years, we have something to offend everybody at this church. I mean, we have all different styles of worship. And here's all I know. I don't care. I can worship to any of it. And if I can do it, so can you. Stop making excuses. Uh, you know, when visitors walk in here, if they don't sense that you and I are real in our worship, uh, then we have failed. You're here to connect with God. And let me make one last comment before going to the last thing. I, I, some of you are going to walk away saying, well, Jamie thinks I, I have to raise my hands in worship. That's not what I'm saying. I, I'm saying let's just be free to have whatever expression. Now watch this. Whatever expression flows from you connecting with God in worship. Amen? So some of you might be more expressive. That's fine. Uh, but I remember years ago when we first unveiled contemporary worship, uh, in a church I was pastoring in Canada, which is a very conservative area. Uh, a chairman of the board, we unveiled it, was just sitting there as we were singing this one song. His name was Dave. And, and, and again, he looked like he was watching like a PBS news hour or something. I mean, there wasn't a lot of going on expression-wise, but he was singing it. And, and then I noticed just a, a little tear starting to form in his eye and come down his cheek. And he's a dear friend of mine. I went up to him afterward and I said, hey, dude, what happened there? He said, I was so incredibly moved during that song. I was just taken up in, into a vision of God that just moved my soul. He wasn't doing this. He wasn't doing this. He wasn't doing this. He was just standing there in his spirit, but, but there was obviously something going on. That's all I hope for for you guys, is that you open yourselves up to God and get real in worship wherever that might lead us. So we got truth. We got relationship. Uh, we got, um, what was the third one? Prayer. Oh, gee, I'm going to hear about that one. Prayer. <laughs> you guys had to keep as much of my head as I do in here. Prayer. <laughs> then we got worship. And then very quickly, because you guys are good at this last one, I'm going to encourage you here right now. Uh, we got generosity. Uh, one of the things that blows me away about this first church is their generosity. Look at what it says here in verse 45. It says, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with them all. <laughs> you know, this is the other centered portion of getting real. It's where you realize that, that it's okay for you to go without if others can have something. And again, this is where Scottsdale Bible Church, I think, is, is, I've been very encouraged by you in the decade I've been with you. Do you know every time we declare a second offering, which we do at, at a spur of the moment, like we did two weeks ago with Houston, and we don't even tell you it's coming. We just announced that day, hey, we're going to take a second offering for the people in Houston and the needs they have. I mean, you guys just dig deep. We announced you last Sunday. You guys gave just shy of $100,000 to people you don't even know in Houston in addition to your regular offering. And I don't say this is an arrogant, proud way. I just say, way to go. Be because in the first century church, that's exactly what they would have done. They would have gone without so that others' needs can be met. 
And, and Scottsdale Bible does that a lot. You know, I, I, I want to be careful how I say this, but, you know, people, I, once in a while somebody come up to me and tell me what they really think of Scottsdale Bible Church that doesn't go here. And, and we have some really good image and reputation in the community, but, but we also have an image that, that um, how do I put it? Well, they see all the BMWs and Mercedes in our parking lots. And they see the area that we're in, and they'll say, you know, it's just kind of one of these upper crust, rich churches, what have you. And, and, and I'll hear people say that, and I'll say, well, you know, we can't help the neighborhood we're in. We can't help the people that have gotten saved here and now have come to Jesus. But what we can do is get radical about sharing our resources with others. And it always gives me great joy to say to people, let me tell you about our last benevolent fund offering. Let me tell you about last year's budget that was $12 million and $4 million of it went to ministries and organizations and missionaries outside of this church. We strive to do that every year to give about a third of our money away because we want to invest that much in the kingdom. But we can only do that because you guys are generous. And again, let's just continue to do that because it's part of the way that we get real with God and with those around us. Now, I want to do one last thing as we wrap this thing up. I want you, you don't have to close your eyes to do this, but I want you to imagine in your mind's eye right now what would happen if our church got real as God wants us to on these five levels. I want you to imagine a church, our church, immersing ourselves in truth to the point that we match up our lives against it each day and we're not afraid to call a spade a spade, be honest about where we are, and then ask God to help us grow in righteousness and love. Imagine that kind of realness. Imagine a church engaging in relationship with other believers openly and honestly with transparency, confession, encouragement, and truth-telling leading the way. Imagine you and I doing that. Imagine having the kind of prayer life that's more marked by trench warfare prayers than King James prayers all the time. Imagine a church getting real with worship, and whether it's over at the chapel or cactus or venue or here, no matter what style it is, but engaging God and not allowing our, our pettiness to get in the way of that. Imagine a church finally getting real with with generosity, sacrificing ourselves for the needs of others. Imagine our church like that. Now here's my point. There's one verse that I did not touch on yet today, and it's the verse we're going to close on. It's smack dab in the middle of Acts 2, 41 through 47. It's verse 43, and it says this. It says, everyone was in awe of what was happening in that church and there were miracles happening through the apostles, signs and wonders. And then in verse 47, it says, And they had favor with the community around them, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. <laughs> wow! Imagine a church that is so real that people would walk in that place and they'd be in awe of what God is doing. They just feel it right away. Once in a while, that happens to me. Once in a while, somebody will say to me, I walked into this church and I immediately felt the spirit. Man, I got to tell you, that's all I ever need to hear. How about you? I'd much rather hear that than, boy, that's an impressive building over there, or, 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 or boy, you have a really good orchestra, or that's a great sermon, Pastor. I, I mean, I, I like hearing all that, but, but, but you can have all that without being in awe 
of what, the God, of what God in his movement is doing in your midst. And I'd love to hear that. Imagine if God would give us favor with our surrounding area. I mean, imagine if we had more inroads to this culture, and it would come because what's going on here is real. And imagine the Lord adding to our number day by day those who are being saved. We're actually praying, and you'll hear more about this in the coming weeks. We're actually praying for a huge harvest here at our church this fall, a huge harvest. Because every time, I'm, I don't know about you, I'm just getting sick of driving to this church every week. I'm not sick of driving to the church. You're who we're meeting by the minute. I'm getting sick of driving to the church every week. And I drive by Starbucks, and there's all these people outside there reading the paper. And, and I drive by the tennis club, and they're all playing tennis. And I drive by the golf, they're all playing golf. And again, I, I, if all those people went to church on Saturday night, I'd be fine. But they didn't. They don't know Jesus. And they need to know Jesus. And they need to join the right side. <laughs> and, and they need to be some of them a part of us but we got to get real so let's do that father thank you for your word thank you for your truth i i just i just love it and i thank you god that you have allowed each and every one of us here to have the kind of mind and heart and for those of us who have trusted your son a redeemed soul to be able to receive these things here today and God, I know we've talked about some difficult things, God, when it comes to your truth and relationships and prayer and worship and generosity. And there's a lot to, to get real about. But God, your Holy Spirit is so powerful. And I pray that you would empower each one of us in the areas that we need to, to get real. And God, may those around us, may ourselves be in awe of you and what you do. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And we say together. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great day.